who want to control and deceive know exactly the people who will disturb That's their right. plans. That's right. And those people are artists. They're the ones that tell the truth. guys and welcome back to another episode of this thing changed my life hope you are good this week hope you are prepping for lockdown 2.0 and overall just wishing you guys a really nice enjoyable week um i'm here to introduce a conversation that i had with the phenomenal alex wheatle around black british literature talking about his latest novel um ya novel called cane warriors that is currently out in all amazing bookstores so make sure you go and buy it um i kind of wanted to rejig the structure a little of the podcast because as much as i love these conversations with these you know heroes in our communities creators writers and overall wonderful people i feel like i haven't really been sitting down with you guys telling you guys how everything is giving you guys my recommendation on reads um, and different books that i'm reading different music or you know artistic things that I've kind of got my head wrapped around in so we're bringing back those intimate conversations and let me know what you think whether you prefer it this way or just straight into the interviews um the first thing that I am so excited to share with you guys is I have finally found a book that I'm so excited to read. Of course, there are so many amazing books out there right now, but I have a few personal favorites and I didn't even know why this book was around until somebody mentioned it to me in my Twitter DMs. Um, as you guys know, last year I was, the book that I was raving about was A Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara. And that book changed my life. Um, in terms of how I look at mental health, how I look at love, how I look at friendships. It broke me, built me up again, broke me, broke me, built me up. And the last page when I closed that book, yeah, I was like, no, this cannot, like, how can a book shake me like this, move me like this? It's, it's impossible. But it did. Like another, A Little Life is that book. Um, and for so long, my favorite, I have, obviously I have favorite books, but A Little Life is like, whew, it's, 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 in, it's intense, um, but it's magical. Um, it's captivating. It's just beautiful. Um, and as much as that it is pretty traumatic, I do recommend people to go out and read it. And people have been going out to buy it and reading it based off of my recommendation. And it makes me so happy that you guys actually respect my book opinions <laughs> because sometimes I just be reading like anything. Um, so somebody messaged me being like, oh, you know, read A Little Life based off of your recommendation. Absolutely loved it. Um, have you read The People in the Trees? And I just went, wait, what? So obviously I had to do my Googles. The People in the Trees is another book by Hanya Yanagihara. I've actually got it right here. Uh, let me see when it was published. It was published by Picador. First published in the UK 2014 by Atlanta Books. I don't understand by Atlantic Books. I don't understand how I don't know about this book, but it's, oh, I'm so excited to read it because obviously another, um, sorry, why do I keep calling this bloody book Another Life? A Little Life um, is a pretty hefty book. It's bordering on Game of Thrones, like thickness, like not war and peace, but it's definitely a thickens. Like this book is not to be played with. Um, and this one is wildly shorter. So it's normal like book page length, like, like between 360, 380 pages. Um, and essentially it's about a young doctor who embarks on an expedition to a remote, a remote Micronesian island in search of a rumored lost tribe. Uh, I'm literally reading from the back of the blurb right now. There he encounters a strange group of young Oh, sorry. He, there he encounters a strange group of jungle dwellers who appear to have attained a form of immortality. Perina, who's this doctor, uncovers their secret and returns to America. Of course, wow, it's already given me colonial exploitation, where he soon finds great success. 
but his discovery has come at a terrible cost, not only for the islanders, but for Karuna himself. Both riveting and unsettling, the people in the trees explores the various faces of the misuse of power when cultures collide. That's, that's the blurb. Um, ah, uh, it's, it just, oh, yes, I'm so excited for it. It's, you, like, I haven't had a book that I'm so excited for in a very long time. Um, I'm also currently reading The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. I've been reading that for a while now, and I think it's taken me a bit longer than expected because I've been so busy out, just outside of um, reading and writing. Work has been on my neck, and so I haven't had a lot of time to read it, and I kind of struggle reading books haphazardly. I kind of like to dedicate a bulk of my time to read things and because it's not a smooth sailing way of reading um it's just i'm just not excited for it which means might mean that i might need to start again from the beginning however i can say brit brit the way she writes she has a really um studied air about her in terms of her writing um i would it's not it's effortless in its studiedness I don't even know if that makes sense but you can tell that she worked on this you can tell that she is a, a professional in the writing space um, you can tell that each word was intentional and was there to serve a purpose it is a book that I think is really great for maybe people who want to start writing because every time I read it um, I'm just looking at the style. I'm looking at, um, you know, the the timing and, you know, where she goes back and forth when it comes to timeline and events and how she draws you in. It has a real, it's giving me Toni Morrison vibes. Um, it's obviously also the story takes place in, I think, 1960s. Um, so it also gives me that vintage feel of of writing um so i really recommend it for that it's really beautiful and also it has like one of the best um covers of a book that i've seen in a very long time and i'm a big cover girl <laughs> so Britt bennett uh, the vanishing half is what i'm reading the people in the trees by hanya yanagihara is what i will be reading and to be very honest with you like somebody should stop me because i'm even gonna read it like today um so yeah um those are the things that I'm really excited about right now. And, you know, the people in the trees really reminds me of a little life. And that just wildly changed my life um, in, a, in a really good way. Um, so this episode, obviously, is me having a wonderful, beautiful conversation with Alex Wheatle, author of the newly released Kane Warriors, a YA novel. And I'm, I really, really hope that this book makes it into the national curriculum i think it's wildly important for children and young people to read this book um, to understand the effects of slavery on the black identity um, but also i think it's a book that is timeless you know when i read it i felt moved just as how much i think a 14 year old would be moved if they read this book so definitely go out and read it talking to alex we saw so refreshing it kind of felt i mean alex is has been in this writing game for a very long time. He's been an author for a very long time. So it just felt like I was this young kid, you know, listening to somebody that is seasoned, that knows their, their work, knows their craft, um, and can give me an insight into what was happening before, obviously, I knew about anything. <laughs> um, so it was really refreshing talking to Alex and I really hope you guys enjoy our conversation. So sit back, grab yourself a nice cup of coffee, you know, if you're doing your laundry, if you're, you are, I don't know, doing the dishes, make sure you get comfortable and really enjoy this conversation. I will see you guys very soon. Um, so without further ado, let's hit it up. Let's see what Alex Vito has to say. Hello guys. I am here with the amazing, incredible, outstanding, phenomenal Alex Wheatle. Thank you, uh, Ray. Great to be here. <laughs> I always like to give my guests, or should I say co-host, which is the name that I'm giving you today. So you have a lot of responsibility on your hands. You're not just a guest on the show. You're also a co-host for today. Oh, okay. I wasn't aware of that when you first invited me on. You are an amazing author. 
um, with a variety of books under your belt and more exciting things. And you have a new, um, would you call it historical fiction? Yeah, historical fiction. Um, sometimes I think YA is too narrow a term. So um, Cain Warriors, I believe that everyone should read it um, from, from say 11 to 111, why not? So yeah, it's for everybody. I agree, because when I read it, um, the character, um, Mayo Omao, um, he's 14, but it just didn't really occur in my brain that he was 14 because he just sounded like he had the emotions of, that I would have if I was stuck in his position. So much as it's YA, I think it's very timeless and ageless, should we say. Perfect. So before we get started, how are you? How have you been? Um, obviously during lockdown, you know, just staring at the four walls and trying to um, get into that space of creative mode, if you like. But also um, what's further impacted me is what happened with George Floyd and the subsequent marches all over the world. And I just found it very difficult to um, watch the news channel with COVID and everything else and also try to be creative. So I struggled a bit. It's only the last two months or so that I've been back on the game, if you like, being back creative and trying to develop different ideas. And, you know, the old Alex kind of um, writing animal is, is back again. Fantastic. I actually, also, I actually also had that trouble where I felt really deflated, especially when the protests were all happening. Yeah. And um, so many like a lot of the media was covering it. My mother telling me, you better not go outside because Corona has not left. So it was about juggling that. And I've spoken to a few artists and a lot, well, there are two camps. There are those who have been fueled with what's going on and have written, but I guess we're quite similar because I was completely deflated and I had no ideas whirling in my head. Um, but a good friend of mine told me that during that time, I tried to try and find things that, inspire you I don't know if you do the same when you are in that environment of feeling a little bit uninspired or whether you have a creative block what are the sort of things that you end up doing to kind of reignite that fire I withdrew back into um, my reading which was great for me I read um, a couple of YA novels including Daniel Jawando uh, Burning Brightly which is fantastic for a debut author she's very young she's going to be and to be a big star and um, uh, you know at any time of stress I always kind of retreat back into um, the golden period of reggae so um, even more so during COVID and so I feel that uplifts me a little bit uh, in the morning or as I'm writing or as I am just going about me. Um, so I just stepped into those old classics um, singers Gregory Isaacs, Burning Spear, uh, Dennis Brown, Sugar Miner and of course um, Bob Marley. Yeah, we're going to talk about Bob Marley in a sec. I'm really excited for that. Um, so one question that I have for you is, I guess you've already answered it with Burning Brightly, but what is something that you're reading right now? Um, not anything at the present, because I, in the last two or three weeks, I've been so busy um, doing um, publicity stuff and marketing stuff for um, Kane Warriors and also um, doing articles and so forth for the Stephen Queen project. And um, so that's filled my time, if you like. So I want to get back onto the reading thing again. I understand there's a new book about Toussaint literature called The Black Spartacus. I'm not sure if that's a correct title, but I definitely will be uh, seeking that out in the next week or so because obviously I'm very interested in the life of uh, Toussaint Louverture, and this is um, a biography, so um, I'll be reading that very soon. Fantastic. Um, okay, this is one of my big fire questions. The first thing that comes into your mind, I think I already know, but we'll see. <laughs> so, Alex, who is the greatest artist of all time? Oh my God, that's not an easy question. <laughs> Wow. Oh, dear me. It, and that includes writers, actors, musicians. Absolutely. All like when you think about it and you take in all the art that you've consumed, to you, it's a very personal question. Who is the greatest artist to you of all time? Well, I guess the greatest influence, if I could put it that way, Bob Marley. 
See, I literally said, oh, I think I know yeah. it. Yeah. And I was right. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, um, no, just, um, just Bob Marley. Um, that's the name that comes into my head, the greatest influence on me, uh, especially as I was transitioning from um, this little naive black kid living out in the sticks and coming to Brixton in the late 1970s and reggae hit me. And then I began to feel an identity listening to his music. I really felt that I belonged for the first time in my life. And so he had an amazing impact on me, not just him, but um, his fellow whalers, um, Peter Tosh and Bunny Whaler, the whole group. I mean, I listened to the first album, to his last album, religiously. Yeah. I did. And it, it just, I just felt a sense of being, a sense of um, belonging, a sense of finally I found my tribe if you like, because, you know, as, as, a young, as a young boy growing up, I had no reference points to tell me who I was. And so um, Bob Marley did that for me. Yeah. Do you think that luxury is given to a lot of young people now? Um, I'm just thinking back then um, in the 70s, 80s, um, that lack of representation must have taken a massive toll, especially... Um, with regards to your own identity politics, but also with regards to creatively. Um, do you think that the change that we've seen and the mass representation that we get in different mediums of society and art, has, have you seen actual progress and do you think it's here to stay? Yes, I've seen actual progress. I mean, we have to remember that um, the marches, the civil rights marches back in the US in the, uh, in the 60s and so forth. Um, what we see this year is much more bigger because of social media, because you can access information at a click of a, um, on a phone. And so the information is right there in front of you. When I was growing up, I had no reference points whatsoever. I mean, you have to understand that I grew up in a children's home that was very white dominated. I never saw any um, black figures in, in authority whatsoever, you know, in charge in any home in the children's home village, none, not even in the schools that I went to. And so all my reference points were accessed by television. For instance, um, I remember seeing Spartacus with the, um, the black, uh, actor Willie Strode, uh, him fighting with Kurt Douglas, and I so wanted him to lead the rebellion, but no. Um, and then there were Tarzan uh, TV that came on a Saturday morning, and the black guy never bested Tarzan in any kind of fight. So what I saw, my, uh, the popular culture that I saw, uh, black men and black women, we were always inferior. That was drummed into me on a daily basis, and it's quite a lot to absorb you know, when you're very impressionable at that age, when you're just coming into teenagehood or whatever, you're just looking, you know, what are we good at? And so that first person was Pelé being a footballer. I thought, ah, oh, there's a black person who's the best at what he does in the world. And that meant the whole world to me, it really did. Um, but Pelé wasn't addressing the kind of issues that I had to deal with in a children's home, being uh, physically abused and mentally abused and the rest of it. Mm. And so what Bob Marley offered me, uh, when I heard his lyrics and I heard his songs, it felt like he was addressing me. And that felt so special. And when he was speaking about uh, movement of Jah people, I felt included in that. I felt that he's singing out to me and people like me to say, follow me, there is, a, there is a better place, there is a better living somewhere. You know, we can get out of this hell, if you like, because, you know, growing up in a children's home, it was hellish. Yeah. And sometimes I would wake up and thinking, no, this has got to be something else. You know, how, how can I tolerate this another day? And so music uh, came to be my balm, if you like. It made me start believing that things could happen, things could occur, and I am part of something. That's amazing. I love that music was your balm. It's, it's incredible. Um, it's quite interesting, actually, you, you mentioned the first time you, you saw someone or something that represented you in media, because I also remember when I first came to England, I was five years old, um, there was a program on television called Power Rangers, and there was this young mm. black woman who was the Yellow Ranger. Um, and I was absolutely astounded 
Um, from then on, I would watch this show religiously to the point where members of my family changed my name to Power Ranger. <laughs> <laughs> Give you a sense of um, belonging and being. That, hey, finally, you belong to, uh, to something. Yeah. And that's, that's sometimes when I travel around schools and I uh, teachers say, oh, Alex, this is a difficult child or that's a difficult child. Sometimes I just wish that um, all they need is that experience that I had, something to believe in, something to work, something that they can feel they could strive to, something that they feel they can belong to. Mm. Um, especially it's quite interesting because just moving on to Kane a little bit before I lose the point. One um, of your character really felt a sense of belonging with, or I felt when I was reading it, with this, this brotherhood that was also escaping with him. Um, and I really felt that, especially, you know, because he's quite young. So there was a part when they had, you know, just escaped uh, the plantation and he looked around and he didn't want to cry or he didn't want to stop moving in, you know, in case his brothers think he was weak. He wanted to really fit in. And so that actually just came into my head. Um, mm. But yeah, that sense of belonging, even in a place that was so horrific, was so important to him. Yeah, we, we all feel that, Ray. Um, wherever we go, we want to, we're human beings. And one of the things that uh, defines us is that we want to fit in, we want to uh, belong. We, we are, this is why COVID is um, uh, mentally stressful. I think, I think that affects us mentally, just like it affected me, it stunted my growing up, not receiving that kind of um, human affection growing up from us as a, as a very young child to a teenager. And I think that damages us. And I think it's damaging us now that we cannot interact and be tactile of each other. We need that to grow, to understand love and affection. And so um, I suffer from that greatly. So um, it's something that uh, I worry about, you know, the length of how this, I don't know how long it might carry on. I'm yeah. praying that, you know, things will um, level off and we can get back to our normal life soon. But I really uh, worry about our young people who, um, you know, they're not getting that interaction that they need. They're yeah. not uh, seeing their friends and, you know, they're only seeing uh, people through uh, Facebook or FaceTime or whatever it may be. So yeah. I do worry about that. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you for that. Bob Marley is the greatest artist of all time for you. Now, the second question I have um, could be a little bit difficult. Um, and I don't want the answer, as <laughs> I'm quite cheating here. I don't want it to be one of the things that changed your life. The perfect book for you. What is that? And have you read it? Oh, the perfect book. Uh, is there such a thing as a perfect book? But again, again I have to go back to what um, really influenced my life and turned me around politically. And that has to be the, um, the Black Jacobins by the great C.L.R. James, who um, there's, there's a Brixton connection here because he actually lived in Brixton on Ralton Road where the troubles uh, exploded in 1981. Um, I think he lived there in the 60s or the 70s. And also he was a relative of Darkus Howe. And Darkus Howe was, um, I wouldn't say he was a militant, but he was a very educated man. He was, he was a member of the Mangrove Nine, that famous, um, that famous uh, trial at the Old Bailey that has been uh, dramatized by Steve McQueen as the first in a series of the Small Act series. And so you could see, uh, and I've seen, I went to a screening just recently, you could see the influence that C.L.R. James had on Dark as Hell into his activism. And so, again, I was, it was 1981. I was probably really at my lowest point because I just uh, started a prison term following what happened in Brixton in 1981. And um, a cellmate, I was very fortunate that my cellmate was an avid reader. And we were talking about a sense of identity and I felt I didn't have any, you know, I couldn't trace back to uh, my parents or my grandparents or any kind of um, place in the Caribbean where I could point to and say, yes, that is where the weed kind of roots comes from. I, I, I didn't have any pointers to that. And so he went to the library and he took me out the Black Jacobins and it's the, um, basically it's the first successful slave revolt uprising in Caribbean history in 1791, led by the, um, the fantastic Toussaint Louverture. And he was a slave at one point, but at 45, he led this rebellion 
And when I was doing my research for Cane Warriors, because what happened with Tacky's revolution in 1760 in the northern parish of St. Mary, yeah. um, I just wonder, I just wonder if um, Toussaint Louverture actually heard of this uprising that occurred 30 years previous to um, the black, you know, the, the whole, uh, the whole text about what happened to uh, Toussaint and his followers and his fight with the French and so forth. So that really uh, fascinates me. And I always wonder, I might even write a play about that one day, who knows? Oh, but, amazing. But um, the Black Jackmans definitely inspired me because as I said previously, I've been used to um, our narrative, my Caribbean narrative, or indeed West African narrative as subservient, as always uh, being under the lash, under the whip, never being empowered in any way. And so to actually read the Black Jacobins and see the Black people empower themselves, mm. deciding themselves how they're going to live, you know, um, having a destiny in their own hands, not, um, not basically being told what to do by their white masters. And they, they just decided that they're going to do this thing. That was such an empowering thing for me. Um, it really was. And it, it, it woke me up politically to what I could achieve, what I could contribute with my art or whatever it may be. You know, my art was still forming at that point. I was a budding DJ MC uh, when I was 17, 16, 17, 18. I, I suddenly felt that my story was important. I suddenly believed that the friends around me, their stories were just as important as anybody else's. And that includes um, prime ministers, queens, whatever. You know, our narrative our black working class narrative, you know, all the way back from Africa to the kings and queens that were there, to colonial times, to the Atlantic passage, they're important. Yeah. And my existence in Brixton in 1981, 1982, that's just as important as, I don't know, um, Oliver Twist, any other great um, literary figures in world history, yeah. you know, and they're valid stories and they should be written about and they should be, uh, canonize why not we're part of that absolutely the black jacobin guys clr yeah. james go out i'm really going to read it because like i'm absolutely excited about it um final question this is my favorite question which is um the motto what i'd like to know is the motto or the sort of uh, mantra that underpins your life or you know that you try and live by if you have any um, I have to apologise if I go to another Bob Marley song that he wrote <laughs> with that he wrote with Peter Tosh, and that is "Get Up, Stand Up." I Get mean, up, up. you know, many of our lives we go through difficulty, hardships. Um, we know that uh, life there's lots of so many injustices, so many things that we have to uh, conquer. Just to, just to, just to get yourself on an even playing field. But um, get up, stand up. That gives me strength. You know, get up, stand up, stand up for your rights. That gives me so much strength. Like when I'm down, I play that. Mm. And despite what's happened to me in the past, despite, you know, the trauma of my childhood, despite all the difficulties I may have, um, I play that and that just gives me extra, extra kind of um, boost of energy just to uh, carry on. Uh, you know, no matter what the detractors might say, no matter what um, the people who might not uh, appreciate me might say, it yeah. just gives me that extra bounce to, um, yeah, face the world, if you like, and say onwards and upwards, you know, get up and stand up. That's what I'm doing. You know, I'm going to fight to um, write my story. I'm going to fight to represent. I'm going to fight all these things that um, lay in front of me. And that song does that for me. Yeah. Get up, stand up, stand up for your rights. I love it. It reminds me of um, actually quite a recent song, so you can understand why I'm pretty millennial. Uh, but Jay Huss came out with, um, who I'm absolutely obsessed with, by the way. Um, he has a latest album and in it, he has a song called Fight For Your Right. And it kind of also gives me that goosebump every time I listen to it. Yeah. Um, that, you know, you need to fight for your rights and um, know your rights and, and know what you can do. So. Um, this book is, well, Cane Warriors is all about getting up and standing yeah. up, in my, in my opinion. Um, especially when, um, I'm, I don't know if I'm pronouncing their name right, is it Mayo or Mao? Moa. 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 Yeah, Moa. 
Ambassa, and he's named after um, a very popular sound system of the 70s and 80s that called themselves Moa Ambassa. They had an incredible following. They played the kind of music that I like, roots music, cultural music, and um, they were all dreads, you know, flowing dreadlocks down their necks and down their backs. They all wore these nutty hats, and they uh, challenged um, the big sound systems of the day, like uh, Jashaka, Sokoxen, and you have to remember that these affairs, they drew thousands in town hall dances all, all over London and in every other major city. And Moa Buster, they're one of my favorites. So I've always wanted to name a character after their sound system. So hence the name, Moa Ambassador. I love it. I feel like I'm getting the sneak peeks into the behind the scenes of Kane Warriors that hopefully you're not telling anyone yeah. else and just us, obviously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, perfect. So, Bob Marley, CLR James, the Black Jacobins, and Get Up and Stand Up. Thank you so very much. Now, to just get into the meat of it, we've already touched on Kane. So, very proud. I'm very proud of it. Yeah. Very proud. Um, and it, just to give a, a, a backdrop, it follows um, the life of Moa, who is a 14 year old boy in uh, a plantation. And also, um, it's, you know, uh, an, an actual historical fiction and narrative of the Tacky Wars. Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's a bit of a mystery. Um, some legends say he was an African prince um, who came from the Akan district, the Ghana or Ghana. Um, and um, basically, he was um, shipped to uh, the Caribbean as a slave but he was a very educated man before he was shipped over. So um, he, he spoke apparently very fluent English. And so he could, um, he could attain a job at the master's house, uh, perhaps maybe looking after um, cattle or looking after the chickens or whatever it may be. Mm. And while the master, he had, he had no idea that he was planning this Easter revolt because his tradition, his beliefs told him that he cannot stay captive. It's just not an option for him. And so that's why he manipulated this revolt. And I felt it was interesting, especially um, whilst I was doing my research, I discovered that um, 12, 13, 14 year old boys, they were considered men by the, uh, by the master class, the, you know, the slaves. And so they would get whipped just exactly the same as his older, um, as older uh, black uh, guys were, or black women were. And that really moved me. I think, my goodness, you know, how could, how could you even tolerate that? How could you even get up in the morning as a 12, 13, 14 year old boy to work these long 13, 14 hour days? And they had this horrible term called seasoning, basically. So when you actually went out into the fields, they, they kind of normalize brutality by whipping you on the back just to, just to prepare you for life. And so that's what I felt it would be more interesting if I take Mo's perspective rather than Taki's perspective. That would have been the easy thing to do. And also I'm a YA writer. And so I thought, I really want this to um, penetrate um, schools, education institutions. That is my... That's my goal with this. I really want our narrative to be out there because so, so often, Rafa, it's been, um, our narrative has been written by establishment figures like William Hague who come out with um, Wilberforce books about all oh, that, you know, it was white people who were the saviors of the slavery thing. They abolished it, but they failed to say that they were given 20 million pounds in 1833, the slavers were. That's an astronomical figure. Yeah. Back then, not a mathematician, but today that'd be worth billions. And so, of course, you know, they didn't mind to, uh, okay, give me the money. We're, um, there won't be slaves anymore. The slaves weren't given a penny. But they failed to uh, mention that um, all these insurrections, all these revolts, actually damaged the sugar trade. It harmed them financially. And so, this kind of um, deal to uh, give these people 20 million pounds was well, obviously for me, quite obscene, mm. really obscene. So we need to uh, capture our narrative. We need to tell our stories. I think it was the great, uh, uh, what's his name, the African writer, Chu, 
about the lions. Can, can you remember that phrase that you said about the lions? Um, the lions never get to tell the tale of the hunt. Mm. Who said that? I think it was Chinua Achibi. Chinua Achibi, yeah. Yeah, that's what, that's what he said. The lions never get to get to tell of the hunt because they're the one shot. And mm. so you always get the tale from the, um, the hunter. Yeah. And I, I feel the same with uh, colonial history, where it's so, it's so often, um, yeah. it's the establishment figures who try to tell that tale. We need to start. And I think this is what, for me, Black Lives Matter actually means that we capture the narrative when we start telling our own stories. And this, I guess, this neatly leads on to what Steve McQueen's uh, doing right now, the small acts. He's capturing our stories. He is a, a ferocious champion of untold stories. And this is what small acts is all about. He's telling those stories that have been there for many decades. And I'm sure the viewers will absolutely be absorbed by them. And hopefully will, the greater population will wonder how comes these narratives have not been on our TV screens before? Mm. I mean, obviously, Steve McQueen can't tell every story, but my God, he's, um, he's made an incredible start with um, these five films. I've seen two of them thus far, and they are overwhelming. They are terrific. They, it, it left me an emotional wreck. So I don't know how I'm going to feel when um, I see all five of them. It's really, it's really a momentous time for Black British filmmaking. It really is. And uh, it was, it's basically going to just conquer the world, I believe. It Amazing. Really is. Yeah. Um, just back to Kane Warriors for a bit. Um, when I read it, there was this notion of freedom and death, which was quite linked together. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of the characters, it's either they died or they were waiting to die if they stayed on that plantation or they become free. Um, I actually quite like the story of Midgewood, who um, was yeah. one of the characters who escaped. Um, and one absolutely beautiful thing that you did uh, was his mother, Miss Gloria, would be the one serving food. Um, and she, along with only a few uh, young children, were the only ones that would be smiling. And, you know, your character asked, you know, his mother, why does Miss Gloria smile? And um, his mother told the story of, well, she had a son, Midgewood, who escaped. Um, and that idea of him, even though Midgewood isn't with her, she was so genuinely happy because at least one of them got away. And when Moa was telling his mother and sneaking into her hut to say, I'm leaving, she was, you could tell she was absolutely thrilled because at least one of her offspring would have, you know, escaped really. And so the idea that of freedom and death was really interlinked because I, I look at things like, um, oh, there was a novel by, um, who was it, Toni Morrison, where, you know, well, I know the novel, a Beloved, sorry, where, you know, the mother mm. killed, it tells a story of a mother who, you know, killed her own child because that death was a way of freedom for her um, outside of slavery. Um, and how close were those themes in your head or, you know, at the front of your head when you were writing Cane Warriors? Oh, very much so. That dilemma, if you like, um, where Moa's father, he's one of the... Uh, and you cannot blame him because he's lost children before. You cannot blame him for uh, reasoning that um, he doesn't want him to go on any uh, revolt or slave uprising because he knows that will mean certain death. And he believes, Moa's father, that um, at least uh, you might be whipped every day, you might be treated appallingly, but you're living. That was his belief. But obviously there's the other side where some of the slaves, um, where Moa's mother argued is that this is not living. It's really not living. You cannot, uh, I do not want this for my children to be treated and, you know, to see them every day under the lash, under the whip, being treated so brutally, inhumane, like animals. Mm. And for them, it's better that they take their chance, they take the opportunity. That's a better life for them. And it'll be a glorious death if they fail. That is how I, I imagine how they, how they kind of reasoned it. And I just tried to imagine myself as a father, I've got three children, and, and also being a 14-year-old, 
where you're on the cusp of it, maybe you don't have to join or maybe you might think twice about it. But obviously, if you do stay, you're going to be treated like a man anyway. And you might get whipped anyway. And so Moa does decide to take this opportunity. But it's that dilemma, isn't it? To live, uh, you know, under the lash or to go out there fighting. And I think that's a, it's a dramatic choice. And obviously, as a writer, as a fictional writer, I mean, what a... a what a situation for me to try and get to grips with. I mean, for me, I can see it. It's like a Shakespearean kind of experience, isn't it? That kind of choice. And I'd love to see that played out on a stage or on a screen or TV drama or whatever. But just, just that kind of a part of the story, the start of the story, that's what captured me. And I, I could really make hay with that and uh, play out the differing roles of parents and so forth and the argument that um, Moa has with his father, and the father actually trying to stop him from joining the revolt with that fight he has with uh, a few of Taki's comrades. So that was an interesting dynamic for me. Yeah, um, I think it's quite interesting because you posed such heavy questions on a 14-year-old, but it really spoke to the burden of young children. You said before that Moa was treated as an adult, even though when I was reading the book, his internal voice was exceptionally young and, and, and very, he sounded like a 14 year old boy. Mm. So there was that, um, that you know, discrepancy and um, almost confusion whilst you're reading because why are these people treating him like he's an adult? Um, but then you pose these questions where a 14 year old has to choose between tacitly complying with the way that his life is, is to joining a, a, a revolt that could potentially uh, provide freedom for himself autonomy for himself and it just made me so incredibly sad that even though I transposed that and put that on the modern young 14 year old boy live black boy living in Britain and much as much as so much has changed when I you know as a 20 you know seven year old woman when my when my mother called me and said don't go to the protest there's COVID outside stay inside the house I also had that struggle of but I, mm. I want to go out and make a difference, but I know that I'm much safer inside and, you know, I'm alive inside, but there is still so much issues. So oh, I don't know, because I, as much as I want to be optimistic to say that, okay, whatever happened in, you know, <laughs> the 1700s, 1600s um, are not, are much worse than how we have it now. Young mm. black kids are still not afforded lighter choices so growing up in a society that uh, belittles them and where in many cases they are um, society teaches them that they're inferior and so basically sometimes they have a choice to make as a fictional writer it's a, it's a device that um, I use and other writers use where you force your characters to make a choice like um, I remember reading Kulti cool Lunen's a scholar way back in 97 and he did that with his characters uh, uh, two of his lead protagonists, one kind of went the bad route or one went the good route. So there's always that, um, that, uh, what's it, that conflict that um, us writers are looking to explore and create in our characters. Mm -hmm. And no doubt you could transpose that to what today is, where um, sometimes I'm asked to go into schools and speak to reluctant readers or kids who might have been uh, detained or in detention or on the verge of getting expelled and so forth. Sometimes I'm asked to go into prisons, young adult institutions and speak to these young people. And I try to, um, I try to say to them that um, their choice um, may be to uh, um, be in a gang or wherever it may be because they opted out of going on the good road. And I, I, I try to uh, persuade them that um, the choice that they originally made doesn't have to be the end game. You can change if you want to, if you, if you desire that. If you can see a way that you can see a role for yourself where you can contribute, where you can um, offer a skill set, where you can learn a skill set and maybe be on that good road. It doesn't always have to be that way. And that choice has always been there for us over hundreds of years. I mean, I remember reading Native Son by Richard Wright. It offered the same choice, you know, where we relate to the white community and you're, you're going up in society that um, sees you as small and tiny and, and uh, not being able to contribute in any way. You're almost seen as an animal. And so sometimes with that kind of mindset, 
you might well behave like an animal in your frustration, in your ferocity. So that can easily happen. And I've seen that happen. And so with Moa, he has almost that same choice. What does he do? Is he going to be um, on that plantation, being treated like an animal every day? Or he's going to empower himself mm. and try to rid himself of that kind of image of that he's seeing that um, is planted in him by the slavers that, hey, you're under my yoke, you're under my lash, you do what I say, otherwise I have the power to take your life away. And so it's quite a powerful thing when a slave can say, no, I have that power too, I can take your life away also. Yeah. For me, that's always an interesting conflict. Amazing. And narrative um, arc. <laughs> so whilst we are not fighting a slave, we're, we're not part of a slave rebellion now, how... How important do you think um, artists, writers, uh, cultural contributors are in disrupting the status quo and um, rebelling as well? Do you see your work as rebellious and do you see the works of other authors as rebellious and how, where, what is the outcome of that work, do you think? That's a very good question. Um, I can only look back to the 1960s and see what artists developed in that time. Um, I was listening to the Staple Singers uh, recently, and um, they were very active in the civil rights period, and they uh, sang songs for the cause. And there was uh, uh, Sam Cooke and uh, Changes Are Gonna Come and, and, and all of that. And then you had the... Uh, uh, hopefully I'll get the term right, the New Yorker poets that emerged in the late 70s, Jill Scott Heron, artists like that, that I always love and go back to sometimes. And so I think to accompany this new movement, we need the musical backdrop as well. Mm. And so, and that's how you can crystallize this struggle in our minds, rather than just go on the odd march here and there. Because sometimes when I speak to young people about how they felt on the march, oh yeah, we, um, we chanted, we did this, we did that. But there's no musical accompaniment to that. I think it'd be much more powerful once we see the struggle in music, on stage, on television, and all the other popular cultures that are out there in art forms, like murals and everything else, I think, if we fill all those spaces, then it, then it can become much more powerful. Mm. Because remember, um, Bob Marley emerged in the early 1970s. He was an artist in the 60s, but he emerged politically in the early 1970s. And um, if you look what happened in Britain uh, in the late 70s, early 1980s with riots all over the land, um, yes, it was because of the way we were treated by society, but also, uh, what really stilled their hand was listening to get up, stand up, stand up for your rights and so forth. You know, we were listening to all that um, narrative from reggae coming from Jamaica and it made our hand strong. You know, we used to um, be in record shops and see a black hand clutching barbed wire with blood dripping down the palm. Mm. That's an incredible, powerful image. So. You know, despite Thatcher, despite William Whitelaw, who was the Home Secretary at the time, we was ready to fight because we had heard of our brothers fighting in Angola, Mozambique, South Africa, through reggae music. And so it empowered us. So music can do that to you. Art can do that for you. Hearing an incredible piece of poetry can do that. Mm -hmm. You know, or seeing a, a piece of artwork, it can just politicize us immediately, like it did for me, listening to um, Exodus and all the other reggae artists of my day, when, I, when I, what I say, when reggae was king between 75 and 1985. And so that's what I'm looking to now, um, to see what artists can come up with, yeah. see what they can create to accompany this movement. Yeah. Because as I said already, this has been the biggest kind of movement it's even bigger than civil rights because people were marching all over the world. And what made it so powerful? There was black, white, and whatever in between, marching with them. It's incredible to see. And um, the establishment does see this as a threat. And they will even see it more of a threat if it starts to penetrate the art world. Yeah. So that is the next step. 
How do you, though, keep up that motivation? Because I actually remember having a conversation during that time of all those protests and uh, around George Floyd and saying, gosh, I feel absolutely helpless because I don't know the impact of these protests. I'll go to a protest and I'll come back home and my neighbors are still enjoying their barbecues outside. The sun is shining. Um, it's a beautiful day. There is no disruption. Um, but I don't know, how do you deal with that sort of hopelessness? Because in my head, these cycles of, of revolution have happened before. And I don't know if I'm patient yeah. enough to see the impact later mm. on when I want it now. That's why the um, art forms and creative forms are so important. So they could um, basically um, steal us and make us believe that this is a cause we're fighting for because it's their in art form and that gives us some kind of hope. Um, when you think about it, I, I don't know how for long you was educated in the English system. Uh, you said you came over here when yeah, you were so what age? Five, so pretty long. So five years old. And so I guess you didn't need any statues to remind you of the accomplishments of, say, Queen Elizabeth I, Henry VIII, the Duke of Wellington, yeah. um, you know, Lord Admiral Nelson. Yes, he's got his um, statue in Trafalgar Square, but you didn't need that to know about what he did, what he achieved, what, is, what he supposedly achieved, and so on. And so this is where we come in as creatives because we can fill in those gaps, we can fill in those textbooks about the stories of Taki, about the stories of Sam Shah, about the stories and narrative of Paul Bogle and so on. They should be made available in the English curriculum. So young people growing up, say you five years old, I can imagine a five, six, seven, eight, nine-year-old child going through a picture book of Paul Bogle. He was a, he was a church minister. And he led a revolution, he led a rebellion. And these are all aspects of British history, whether they like it or not. They might say, oh, this occurred thousands of miles away. But um, kids, they really have to understand. And the establishment has to understand and face up to um, the evil of the British Empire, one of the most brutal regimes in world history. That is a fact. They cannot escape that. I'm encouraged when I go to Germany. And I've been to many schools there in many cities. There. The Crompton series did perform really well. And what really stuck with me is that they have this um, system where um, every kid learns about the Holocaust. Doesn't matter where you come from, they take it on field trips and they learn about it, they learn to suffer through it and so on. And yet here, the colonial past is not really addressed, not the brutality of it. They kind of talk about the glory and empire, but they, they don't really uh, discuss the brutality of it, like what happened in Amritsar and, and so forth, and other tragedies, other massacres that they were obviously um, at fault for. Mm -hmm. So for me, that is part of this Black Lives Matter movement. We have to face them up and make, and make them accountable yeah. for what happened in in the past and we need to uh, raise our glorious dead and put them in textbooks and put them in fiction and put them in not this i'm not a statue person because i think you can have a, a, a much more impactful kind of existence if they're in the fabric of society you know in the textbooks and so forth where the kids actually learn it rather than this oh that statue is that person that soon come out of their head but to introduce it into into the school curriculum, I think, is my goal. Yeah. That's where I really want Cane Warriors to end up, where it's studied, where young people, uh, 11, 12, 13-year-olds, they will look to Jamaica in 1760. They will maybe appreciate the circumstances of uh, these slaves and what they had to deal with and how uh, the British and Commonwealth were made so rich because of that because of sugar, because of the sugar trade, because of what's happening in India and how they raped everything over there to improve their lives and why these mansions were built and why they had so much funding for the industrial revolution. The money had to come from somewhere and it came at the exploitation of black and brown people all over the world. So young people here need to learn that. They really do. Yeah, thank you. Um, and finally, with regards to making this difference in sort of um, 
Black British art, and most importantly for you, Black British writing, are you seeing um, that rise? Um, I'm seeing a lot of Black British writers coming up right now from debut writers to, you know, those long forgotten finally getting their limelight. But how do we continue that and ensuring that this diversity train that we're on right now doesn't have an end final stop, but actually becomes part of the, I don't want to say black British canon, because I, I really just want these works to be just part of the literary canon in general. So how do we get that to happen? It's a very good question because um, when I first arrived in 1999 with my debut novel, um, there was a a small group of us, including Courtney Newell and Stephen Thompson, and we thought we were going to, this was the start of something, a tidal wave of black narratives, especially um, that's never been heard of before. You know, life in Brixton or life in West London, you know, for your average uh, working class young guy or girl or trying to get through this crazy world. Now, how we can sustain it? Um, We we don't just need black authors. We also need uh, black people in positions in terms of marketing, in terms of publicity, you know, uh, obviously editors as well. We, We still do not have too many editors, black editors working in the larger publishing houses. And also, um, the book buyers, they need to address this as well. It's not just the publishers. I know there was this big thing last year, this big report published, I think it was last year, about the lack of diversity in publishing. But there's also a lack of diversity in the book buyers, you know, the Waterstones and so forth, where sometimes an incredible, brilliant novel might be rejected as a front of front of store because maybe the book by Waterstones, the head by Waterstones doesn't quite get it. And that's happened too often in the past. And it's denied uh, black writers a career, if you like. You know, I mean, as you say, there are writers, uh, Bernadine Evaristo, for example, who was published way back in the 90s and now she's getting the rewards. But, um, but how, how many other authors have been denied that opportunity? who uh, have written incredible works. I'm, I know a few of them. Joanna Trainer was one when I was first published. Sister Josephine, for me, that was a classic text. Um, Carly Smith, um, for me, Moss Side Massive, one of my inspirations when I wrote Bricks and Rock. I know it's an inspiration for Courtney Newland. Um, for me, that's, that's a stone cold classic, but um, her career kind of stored up, not sure why. So we, you know, over the years, we keep losing incredible, talented um, artists and authors. So hopefully this time it won't happen again. They could have uh, sustainable careers and it looks like they will do now because there's so many. So I really would like to see more black, young black male authors coming forth and um, basically making sense of their world, of their time, of their point of living, if you like, like I did with Bricks and Rock. You know, it'd be nice to see a narrative about what's going on today. So um, we're lacking that. We're still lacking that. So we really need to encourage our young black male authors to, uh, you know, let them dominate that space. Not dominate, but inhabit that space. I remember Steve McQueen said something um, about filmmaking. He said, uh, there's so many been denied over the years, still careers and so on. And I feel the same has happened in the publishing industry. Yeah. And so it's not just the uh, diversity in the publishing houses that we need to address, but the more greater beasts of this uh, publishing industry from whoever buys the books or textbooks into their stores. I mean, for example, W.H. Smith's in Brixton. Um, you know, they, they still fail for me to uh, um, basically uh, put books out in their stores that reflect the diversity of that, um, you know, of Brixton in South London. They still fail to do that. I mean, they, they don't even stop my books there. So what does that say? You know, I'm called the Brixton Bar, but not in WH Smith. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, understanding need to be on their part, that they need to acknowledge what's going on. And what, um, because when I go into schools, um, the greatest thing that librarians tell me is that so-and-so or Johnny in the corner or whatever has never come to the library before. I tried one of your books and he lapped it up. That is like, music to my ears, exodus to my ears, you know. <laughs> and so if I'm getting that reaction and yet the books 
the bookstores are not reflecting that. We need to change that. Absolutely. Speaking of small acts, um, I know that episode five of it of that is called Alex Sweetle. Um, but you say, just tell tell us more about that and what we should expect from that episode. It's going to be emotional. <laughs> I can say, I can say that much. But basically, it takes my time from living in care, from when I'm around about eight, nine years old, and for what I suffered there. And eventually to um, to Brixham, where I went to in the late 70s. And it kind of uh, documents my time, that traumatic period that I had as a young young boy, until I ended up in prison, um, following the Brixham riots of 1981. And basically uh, where I met Simeon, who was really like a, a father figure to me. And he helped me with that traditional uh, transitional kind of process of um, not knowing who I was, not believing in myself, having very low esteem, and him giving me uh, the Black Jacobins to uh, try and find some um, meaning in that book, some kind of um, belonging in that book. So um, it's a very important narrative. It really is, not just for me, but for any others who uh, maybe felt lost or still feel lost even today who are not sure of what direction they're going, not quite sure if they have the talents to um, make any kind of contribution in society, not quite sure if um, uh, they're gonna be ignored or forgotten about or their life doesn't mean anything. I mean, that's what I was in my teenage years. And so hopefully it will be quite inspirational to, to anybody who um, has gone through those moments. And you don't have to be rich or poor or whatever. You can just have those moments anywhere in your life where you doubt yourself, where you think to yourself, God, what is life all about? And so my story reflects those struggles. Yeah. Thank you. And just a few final questions. Um, a tip to the artist doesn't necessarily have to be um, writers, but you know, any sort of artist that wants to interrupt, that wants to make a change, um, that wants to accompany the movements that we have on um, and the fight for, you know, racial freedom and, and equity, what big tip do you have for them and in, for their work? Well, something I was told when I was 18 by Simeon, when I was asked, Alex, what are you passionate about? And I thought long and hard about that. And I said, I'm passionate about um, what I went through, the, uh, what my friends went through, uh, what I've experienced, I feel it's important. And he said, then that's your thing. You've got to express that. So that goes for anybody, um, find your passion. What do you want to say to the world? What are you raging about? What are you happy about? You know, that is, that is art. That is, the that is the purest art form that I, you know, that's how I define art by you produce, you try and express what you feel in here. Mm. And that's what I've been doing. I mean, I'm, doing, I'm not doing anything different to what I was doing at 16, 17, 18, when I used to write my little raps, my little lyrics, my little songs, or even when I was eight, nine, 10 years old, when I used to try and make a little comic, um, because I was inspired by comics at the time, being a uh, wizard and chips and so on. I'm just trying to express what's in here in a way whether that might be humorous whether that might be funny whether that might be tragic whether that might be whatever emotion i was feeling i just felt the need to get it out of my skin yeah so follow your passion perfect and what can we expect from you what else do you have in the works are we going to get a sneak peek into your next project do you have anything on that you're doing let us know um I've just edited uh, first, second draft, I think, uh, another Caribbean historical novel. This time it's um, the, the main protagonist is a young woman. Ooh. And, and it involves her, I can tell you this much, she goes off to the seven seas with Sir Henry Captain Morgan, who's sat Panama. So um, it's okay. quite an exciting event. I'm going back to the time when I, I used to love adventure stories with um, uh, you know, all those Captain Blood stories that were published uh, maybe a hundred or so years ago. And also um, Treasure Island, that kind of feel, that kind of atmosphere, that kind of exciting narrative, if you like, Huckleberry Finn, that kind of stuff, where a young person just goes off on an adventure 
you know, and they find out about themselves. And it's, you know, I have to say it in the Caribbean. I had to have a young female this time. And she kicks ass. That's, I can promise you that. She kicks ass. I'm so excited to read that. I can't wait. And hopefully I get you back on here again to discuss that story as well. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Where can people find you? Are you on any socials? Um, if anybody wants to get in touch. So, yeah. Okay, I have a website, um, com. so people can message me there if they like. You know, I'm very approachable. I don't have any secretaries to um, uh, fill my messages or anything like that. I'm, I'm real, I'm live. So, <laughs> so they can, um, anybody can contact me through that or on Twitter or Facebook and, uh, you know, I'll get back to you. Perfect. Thank you so much, Alex. It was absolute pleasure to have you on. I have literally learned so much. I think you've been an amazing guest. Thank you. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. And I will catch you guys next week. Remind us all that art is dangerous and it's something that the society has got.